Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, this podcast from the Centre for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge with Professor Ali Ansari and me, Suzanne Rain. Sorry, we've been away for a couple of weeks, but we're back now. And today we're going to be discussing the battle for global resources. And our special guest this week is Richard Williams. Richard is executive chairman of Bunker Hill Mining Corporation and was formerly chief operating officer of Barrett Gold. These are both mining companies listed on the Canadian exchanges, but domiciled in the US. And Richard, in his former life, was a UK special forces officer and was the commanding officer of the Special Air Service during some of the Iraq and Afghan time period. So he has a lot of experience of operating in difficult and dangerous places, which he's then transferred into the mining industry. We're going to try and demystify some of these questions about who controls global resources and how the competition for them is playing out. And Ali, I think you're starting. I am. And I'm going to ask the sort of the... uh... The easy question, I suppose, or the question that I think a lot of people think about if they happen to glance at newspapers and magazines about this global competition. And that is, you know, what are these critical metals? And is China really winning um, in this race for these critical metals? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Great question. And thanks very much for having me on. All metals, when, you know, demand exceeds supply, are by nature critical. And the current situation that we find ourselves in is a world that wants to electrify its energy systems for climate reasons, but there are also other agendas too in that. And so the metals required to store and distribute power, you know, through batteries and so on and so forth, have by definition become critical over, say, the last decade. It's more than that, but over the last decade. And the list of those would include things like lithium and graphite and nickel and cobalt and so on, all because those metals are necessary for electric power, be it batteries, storage, distribution systems or elsewhere. But one of the critical metals that is universal and there's a real shortage of it as we look forward is copper. And for one reason only is it it conducts electricity better than anything else that's available at its cost. So if you look at the demand for copper over time, it's directly related to the provision of electricity. So while China built its cities, which has been a big effort in China over the last many decades, and they've had to ensure that everybody's got access to power, they have to lay copper. And as a result of that, there's a huge sort of surge for investment in copper mining. And right now what we see is a real interest in just say electric vehicles and the need to build batteries. You hear about gigafactories and so on and so forth, even in the UK. And as a result of that, people have got to mine more. And one of the problems with it is it typically takes between 10 to 20 years before you find a potential mine and you turn it into a potential mine. And if it's a large one, it can cost you many billions of dollars over that time to get it up and running. So. You know, the problem with global supply chains for critical metals is it does require a vast amount of money to go into projects that are pretty speculative that will take a long time to deliver. So that's a sort of relatively long-winded way of saying all metal when when demand exceeds supply is critical. And right now, the competition around the world or the opportunity around the world for miners, such as myself, is to find metal that the world needs 
and sell it into the market in ways that you can make money. Now, is China winning on this? Well, China is, in many respects, because their mining industries are, are primarily state-owned enterprises. You can buy shares in them. If you're rather like in Saudi Arabia, you can buy shares on the public exchange of Marden, which is the Saudi Arabian state-owned enterprise. They're primarily instruments of the state, but connected to commercial best practice through stock exchanges and, and so on and so forth. And because they're instruments of state and they're backed by stake funds, they can move incredibly quickly and they can take risks that private enterprises such as mine, um, owned publicly, you can buy shares in it if you wanted to, can't take. And so the real difference between China and the West, using financial jargon, mm. is the cost of capital is virtually zero. So when they want to borrow money to build something, they go to the state and say, give us the money and the money turns up. Mining companies like myself need to spend a lot of time winning arguments with very competitive capital markets. And when I get the money, it's going to cost me 15 to 20%, whereas in China, it will cost them zero. And so when it comes to the so-called competition for global metals right now, China has the lead because its cost of capital is lower and its reach is quicker and bigger. And I think, Richie, I was just, you sent me some articles this morning on this. Yeah. I mean, there's so many statistics about yeah. what China's invested in and where and what percentage of the total yeah. world amount of it is and everything. But this one, I thought in the past two years, Chinese companies have spent $4.5 billion acquiring stakes in nearly 20 lithium mines, mostly in Latin America or Africa for example. Is that what you're talking about there, that yeah. kind of massive yeah. forward investment, mostly speculative? Absolutely. And again, the asset owner, as we call it, the asset, the mine owner sitting in Bolivia or Chile or Argentina or Zimbabwe, if we're keeping to the lithium thing, will be sitting there and saying, look, I want to sell this asset to someone who's going to pay me the most amount of money as quickly as possible. And China effectively turns up with a lot of money and makes it available immediately. The Western companies turn up and they offer all sorts of advantages to people, but they simply don't move that quickly. And so what tends to happen is China may, I mean, that four and a half billion dollars, they may end up buying, you know, 20% of it being complete rubbish, mm. but they can just write that off. Uh, the Western major companies, you know, the Rio Tintos, the BHPs, whoever it wants to get into lithium, they really can't afford to take that risk and they don't actually need to, to deliver returns to their shareholders. So it's this difference between an industrial strategy funded by a state, executed by state-owned enterprises, into countries where the state underwrites the risk, versus these commercial multinational corporations that we have in the West, BHP, Rio, and elsewhere, that have to work to some very, very good agendas delivered by a complex range of stakeholders who want to ensure that they don't damage the environment. That's a good thing that they return investment with profit to their shareholders. That's also an exceedingly good thing, that they respect human rights and so on and so forth. I'm not saying Chinese companies don't do all those things because over time, there's evidence, you know, more than uh, evidence. They, they do. They champion all sorts of positives. What makes a difference for them is their ability to get access to capital and the speed at which they can move. But basically, the location of these minerals, it yeah. sounds to me, I mean, some of the countries you've been mentioning are not countries that necessarily are going to be uh, championing necessarily some of the business practices, shall we say, that we might have in the West. Yeah. So in terms of where these resources are, they're in places where they might be quite difficult for us to access. And we're obviously in competition with 
with China, as you say, who has state backing and state, you know, underwriting of their their project, these yeah. state companies. Is that not an argument, however, then, given the strategic importance and the imperative of us getting these minerals, for the states in the West to begin to underwrite or begin to sort of provide some sort of state support to the multinationals you're talking about? Or is would that be completely counterproductive or impossible or what? I mean, why isn't there an industrial strategy, as you say, in the West to say, look, you know, we're facing competition, which our multinationals can't really realistically compete with, or not on the speed, as you say, that... So we need to give additional support. There is a very good case for that. If you you know pull together a sovereign wealth fund, for instance, like the Saudi Arabians have done, based on the back of oil, and are going to be investing that in in the supply of critical metals to feed a new Saudi Arabian electric battery um, supply chain, um, they're able to move very quickly. They've got the money. They've got the intention. They've got the requirements. In the West, I think it's a little bit more complicated, and people forget about the fact that one of the reasons that our economies have done well over the last 20, 30 years is we've essentially been able to get cheap metal from wherever it is in the world to go into our computers, our phones, our cars, our washing machines, whatever it is, and we don't really care where it comes from. And the fact that China built its cities and its infrastructure over that same time period and needed an awful lot of metal meant that actually the refining capability, because you don't just get stuff out of the mine and it suddenly it's gold. I mean, so in some cases you can get that. But in the main, you, you're essentially sending a concentrate, which is metal laden rock, in a boat to a refinery somewhere in the world that is then converted to the final product. And those refineries are low margin businesses typically and require a lot of power and they make quite a lot of environmental mess that comes with them. We shut most of those down in the 1970s and 80s, courtesy of very good environmental regulations. But China built them all because they wanted to, and other places, they, they needed the metal. And so we, for years, have benefited from the fact that our mines, from wherever it may be in the world, the Congo, sends its concentrate to a Chinese smelter. And at the back end of it, traders provide us the cheap cobalt that we need to go into a battery manufactured in California. We haven't cared where it's come from. And so sitting there and going right now, this is where this strategy discussion between going from decoupling to de-risking is a little bit more nuanced message. If we go, actually, I'm worried about inflation. <laughs> One way I can really help inflation get worse is by much more expensive metal because I feel more secure from getting metal from an American producer sitting in Michigan. And so... What tends to happen in this discussion is, on the one hand, it gets simplified in geostrategic security terms. We've seen a little bit of this in Iraq, Iraq and Afghanistan. When the strategy becomes too military-focused, too simplistic, you forget about a whole bunch of other stuff downstream, which is related to welfare and, and economy. So you say, I must secure my supply chain. Well, why? Actually, what the economies of the world need is the cheapest possible metal mined in the most responsible way to ensure that the downstream products, which is cars, phones, bridges, whatever it might be, can be bought by consumers at the lowest cost and deliver the most amount of social utility. And so it's, it's very complex. Now, there will be some areas in the military supply chain where certain metals actually do need to be secured. And it's it would be foolish if 100% of that supply came from a competitor that could turn it off at any time. And you mm. see the way you know sanctions have worked through Russia and Ukraine. But it's really interesting on this because palladium, critical for the uh, catalytic converters that go into our cars and ensure that we don't poison the environment, 
that's provided primarily from two sources, Russia and South Africa. And you can buy Russian palladium on the market right now with no sanctions whatsoever. Why? Because if we sanctioned Russian palladium, we would collapse our auto industry. So, you know, when you look at each of the specifics here, the big stuff that appears in the papers about, you know, you know, we've got to secure our supply chain starts becoming a little bit more complex when you look at actually what this will cost society. Will it lead us quicker to a green revolution that helps the environment? Will it lead us quicker to stable economies? This is sitting right in the middle of those that are concerned about the consequences of globalization um, versus those who see the benefits of it. And the metal, this little old industry, which is mining, which produces metal that's absolutely critical to the world, <laughs> sits in the middle of all of that. Uh, and so this is why they've moved from decoupling the supply chain, making sure we never buy anything from China, we're taken to it, it's extreme, to de-risking, to saying that actually we can't predict the way the competition with China is going to go. We don't want to be completely dependent upon them for a whole bunch of things. Let's soften the um, approach. I want to get you to talk more about that. But one of the areas where I think this is interesting is this question of the processing. Yeah. And we were talking about the Australian example, where Australia mines 53% approximately of the world's lithium. So we have this all in our minds that it's all in difficult mm. and dangerous places. But in fact, a huge amount of it is yeah. in Australia and it digs it up and then sends it to China for processing, which seems utterly counterintuitive when we're trying to de-risk everything. And then the debate appears to be in Australia, well, it's very, very difficult to set up that processing capability within Australia to do it. it is, why, is, why, why is that? Why can't we do it ourselves? Is it because it's too dirty or too expensive or... Um, too difficult. It's, it's to do with the end user of the product. The, the mining value chain, as it's called, you know, from digging up the metal in concentrate, sending it to the smelters, uh, and, and then going from there to the user of the metal and then the end product. Just look at lithium, which is the electric batteries for vehicles primarily at the moment. They're much more than that, but just take vehicles. The majority of those are built in China right now. And so the miner digs up lithium or sucks up lithium, depending whether it's salar or pegmatite, it's different things, concentrates it, dries it, puts it on a ship, sends it to the place that can most efficiently mine it. And that's typically nearest to the source of demand. So these refineries are low margin business. In other words, they got a very skinny, like sub 5% uh, operating profit on that. And the only way that they keep away from insolvency is to have vast amount of volume coming in. It's a volume business. And so, yeah, Australia could build lithium refineries, but they'd also need to be near the electric vehicle battery manufacturers who then need to be near the auto manufacturers. And, you know, I've there's examples of this all around the world, not just there. I mean, you know, neodymium, dysprosium and other rare earths, by the way, Rare earths are only rare when you need them. They're all over the place. Uh, and they've become rare because we need them. That point about critical metals is, you know, in, just outside Teesside in the UK, there was this sort of wish to build a sort of rare earth refinery that then connects to a gigafactory that builds batteries. Why? Well, one of the interesting anomalies of Brexit or whatever it's called uh, or however it's adapting is that um, with respect to the electric vehicle supply chain, is the majority of an electric vehicle in terms of its value comes from its battery. Not well known that. 
And if you're going to build an electric vehicle in the UK, just saying you're going to sell it into the European market and avoid tariffs, the majority of the value of that vehicle has to have been built within Europe. And if the majority of that vehicle's value is in the battery, and you can build a battery in the UK, then you can avoid this tariff. You can be part of the European vehicle's battery supply chain. But, you know, one of the suppliers, potential suppliers of that metal, say Tanzania, is quite keen on having part of that battery supply chain in its country. It doesn't just want to be a country that, you know, produces concentrate with neodymium dysprosium and then puts it into the market and the people downstream make most of the money, Tanzania would prefer to make most of that money. So it says, well, why don't we have the refinery in Tanzania? Well, the problem is the majority of that work would have happened outside the European Union area and that would create downstream costs for the auto manufacturer. So again, I'm twisting two or three different examples together to basically say essentially the reason it happens is to ensure that every part of the value chain maximizes its profits. Now, if the biggest market is China, then send it to China, let them process it and on. Now, if we produce, remember, <laughs> electric vehicles, and you saw an article on that recently, you know, China is outproducing that by an enormous degree relative to the West. And we, we've got to change all of that. And when we change all of that, then the refinery changes. The other point I'd make on this, and I'm sorry for long with the answer when it comes to refineries, is it's pertinent to Bunker Hill. Bunker Hill used to be a vertically integrated operation before it was shut down in 1980. In other words, it had a mine, it had a refinery next to it. Why did it shut down in 1980? Because it couldn't keep up with the very good environmental regulations passed in the 1970s, the Clean Air and the Clean Water Act, primarily, under Jimmy Carter. But it was started all the way back with FDR and even before that, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, actually. And they said, we don't want to have... Americans poisoned as a result of air emissions and mismanagement of the waterways. It's a good thing, by the way. <laughs> so it got shut down and all got tidied up. But in, the, in that time, by 1980, most of hard rock mining in North America collapsed because you couldn't have all these dirty little smelters produce metal. And, and hard rock mining in the United States, not university, but, but just you know, reduced enormously. So there's this pause. Remember, the 1980s wasn't, well, you know, you just got out of the oil shock and you had all the other dramas. In the 1990s, you had the rise of China. And so where are smelting operations going to go? They're not going to go into very expensive North American locations with all these rules. They're going to go to the nearest market for the metal, and that's China. And so in our lifetime, that's what's happened. And now we're in this business saying, oh, gee, actually, I want to have you know, American-produced metal. Well, okay, where are you going to put the refinery? And into here comes Saudi Arabia, of course. Saudi Arabia's got very cheap power, great human capability and an awful lot of money. And they are, as part of their plan, very interested in being capturing part of that battery supply chain that they think the world needs. And you and there's a really um there's a really straightforward British example as well, which is, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, the UK has quite a lot of lithium, mostly in Cornwall. But in order to get it out, we'd have to dig up Cornwall and that's not going to get past any local planning committee or indeed everybody who goes on holiday there every summer, including most of the politicians. So we're in this situation where we we talk an awful lot about net zero and wanting to be green and not wanting to be dependent on China and all the rest of it. But even where we do have some of these yeah. metals in the UK, we're not seeing people on the street. We're not seeing the Just Stop Oil people protesting for the opening of mines in 
England. No, no we're we? not. And there's the, there's the other, you know, there's metallurgical coal up in the north and, and so on. It is that, you know, for the UK, why would you, if you don't need to, why do you need to dig holes in the UK? Unless there's some industrial reason, some employment reason that's really going to help. You know, we stopped needing to do all that at the end of the Industrial Revolution. And I mean, you know, Second World War was a bit of a sort of blip. But after that, let's get our cheap metal from somewhere else in the world. And the advantages of somewhere else in the world is these developing countries, look at the DRC, but look at anywhere that's got loads of metals, can really benefit economically if it's done right as a result of the um, extraction of those metals. You know, these countries which we call developing or do entirely depend in the early stages of their development, which is elongated on the, on primary industries, which is agriculture, fishing and, and mining. Now, have they had the best deal over the last uh, 40 years, shall we say? The answer is evidently not. But people are, they're all adjusting those deals now. And I was involved in Tanzania for over a lengthy period of time, adjusting the terms of a mining contract there that ensures a more equitable distribution of income between the foreign investor and the host nation. That's a really good thing. Mm. So do I think the people of Cornwall need those jobs? I don't know enough about it, almost certainly. But is the cost of providing those jobs going to be socially more expensive in terms of the environmental footprint and so on and so forth. I don't know. I mean, I know guys who are doing it down there and I wish them luck. And really, if it's done the right way, like Bunker Hill, there's a way of doing these things that doesn't rip the environment apart. And where that's possible, you should do it. But you should be having environmentally sensitive operations in the developing world that improves the wealth of the developing world at no cost, minimum cost to its environment, if you can do it. And these new standards that have come in globally, new expectations related to how metal needs to be mined, no child labor, minimum damage to the environment, and certainly do no harm where you can. Those things have been very helpful for raising the standards of the, the quality of mining globally. And that includes China, by the way. The idea that China goes in and just rips holes, doesn't care about the environment or doesn't care about people is out of date. It's not that, that there aren't examples that NGOs and others could find of terrible practices, but they could find that anywhere in the global mining industry. China is realizing, uh, and again, I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not a champion for China, but it's quite logical. If you're a country that needs to have good relations worldwide to ensure that your economy sustains itself, and mining is one part of that, you really need to sort of meet where you can global standards. Otherwise, you become vulnerable, and, and it's just a pure sustainability problem. But does does China have the advantage of not, I mean, as they say, not having to pay the same sort of attention to, say, human rights issues as we do? I mean, when you look at, I was lo looking at one of your, you know, the talking points. I mean, one of the interesting things you were mentioning about Afghanistan. I mean, how is it that we lost out? I mean, how is it that the West wasn't able? I mean, partly we know because of the politics, but it's amazing in a sense that the Chinese have established themselves so forcefully yeah. there. And uh, the chief beneficiaries are there. I mean, is, is that, how would you explain that? Um, Robin Cook's ethical foreign policy, you know, in terms of its, you know, admirable um, vision, also delivers great constraints to us, which we're happy to sign up for. Mm. We're not going to do deals with the Taliban who don't respect human rights in ways that our country could support. We take that view, and that's our choice. But that limits us. China, um, I think the euphemism is more pragmatic about this. And so in Afghanistan, uh, which is loaded with minerals, 
not all of which are economic and they haven't done enough work to prove that. And that's part of the interesting legacy of Afghanistan that has to be addressed. There are some extraordinary mineral deposits, one of which is owned by China, uh, the MC Metallurgical Corporation of China, MCC, that I actually did some drilling on when I was there as a Afghan mining CEO. You know, it's got potentially one of the world's most serious copper mines if it could be brought to production. And it's pretty close in, in the map. It's not close in terms of the logistics to China mm. and, and so on and so forth. Now, China will be willing, seemingly, to operate with the Taliban government to bring those metals to production. And we, I don't think, would be. It's also been, Richard, I know I keep interrupting you, and I'm very sorry, but, but as I understand it, everybody sort of gives a cautionary note on, on seeing China's efforts in Afghanistan on the mining front as being more successful than they actually are, in that that copper deal was signed in 2008 yep. for 30 years, and they're now halfway through it. I don't know, so you're the expert. So they've obviously suffered enormously, as everybody has, from the instability in Afghanistan. So it's just been really difficult on the ground. I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the INAC copper deposits are very interesting when you get to the specifics of it. One of the reasons they haven't been able to mine it is because sitting on top of it, there is a 10th century settlement that is described by the French archaeologists as the Machu Picchu of Central Asia. And so it was nothing to do with security. It was the fact that what they want to do is dig a big hole and remove the copper. But sitting on top of the copper mine is this settlement that was originally put there because of the grade of the copper and it sits on the Silk Road and copper was and mining was the reason the settlement was there in the first place. And so when I was there, you'd see it was primarily French um, NGOs, uh, ar archaeologists working exceedingly hard to log and remove the artifacts before the bulldozers turned up. So you, there's an interesting challenge for China associated with, and again, I'm, you know, if they were listening, they, they probably wouldn't appreciate me characterizing it this way. The removal of something that is so precious in terms of the history of the world in order to generate the copper, that's the real issue that got in the way. And there are a number of other practical engineering issues too, but you can overcome them. And then the other point was, I'm speculating slightly, why would China want to develop that metal when it didn't need it, when there was a Western war going on? Let's just wait for that to end, which it will end. Then we'll redo the deal with the new government in ways that bring vast amount of infrastructure investment, railways, power, and so all those things that we didn't do. And that will secure relationships in Central Asia, not just over the life of mine, which could be 20, 30 years, but beyond that, which is the Belt and Road Initiative. And when I looked at our time in Afghanistan, not militarily, but commercially, and I was there running a mining business there from 2010 to 2014, is you kept on asking yourself, when we leave, which we're going to, what physical infrastructure are we going to leave behind that changes the socioeconomic future of Afghanistan? Afghanistan was denied railways because the Afghans said, I don't want railways back in the industrial age because they bring troops in faster than I can shoot them. So the most expensive railway, the Berlin to Bombay railway, went through Pakistan, through Iran, and on its way to Berlin. Didn't go via Afghanistan. Could have easily cut the bottom bit down there, Helmand, Nimruz, and on, but they didn't. And the Afghans said, we don't want that to happen. Um, Russia didn't get 
enough time to build railways. And, and at that time, they built the air and the, and the vehicle infrastructure that was required for what they were doing. And they were their next step was to do all these things. But without railways, which is industrial age technology, you can't move the concentrate over land efficiently enough to still make money. So you need railways to do all of this. That is really interesting because, as I again, as I was researching it, I learned the stuff that you obviously know, which is having the mine is one thing, but you also have to have the above-the-ground infrastructure, which is trucking, roads, taxes. Power. Power. Water. And there's clearly going to be increasing tensions in Afghanistan over who yeah. controls access to those and who benefits. So according to something I read, who knows, Sirajuddin Haqqani, scourge of the US, now interior minister, has control over enormous area between Kabul and Pakistan, where there's a large deposit of chromite. I don't really know what chromite is, but um, it's obviously <laughs> important for something. And he's power building because power and wealth comes from controlling the roads, the infrastructure in that area where the mine sits. And the reason I'm asking this is because this is the resource curse, isn't it? Particularly in unstable places where a desirable thing at the heart of contested ground leads to building of power bases, corruption, militias. And I think there's been other bits of fighting in Badakhshan over... I mean, how do you see that in the bits of the world that you've worked in or yeah, no, the resource curse is real. You're right to draw into the, the interests of those that own the assets, as we call it, the mine. And are they aligned with the state and the nation and, and so on and so forth? But it doesn't apply equally in, uh, everywhere. And the history of mining as a source of useful development, there are many examples of that too. But in Afghanistan, where, as we remember, both the narcotics trade, the logistics smuggling networks and so on, all of which provided warlords, if we call them that, but key powerful uh, individuals, the resources to retain power, those things need to be you know, not wrestled from them, but there needs to be some form of adjustment and partnership. So we came across this quite a lot in Afghanistan when I was running this experimental mining business that was 50% Afghan owned. And I met all sorts of rather interesting Afghans that would, you know, be generic at that particular time, absolutely referred to as enemies of, of our mission, all of whom had mineral assets, but didn't have the technical expertise to develop them. And yeah, I visited a lot of chromite, uh, there's cobalt, there's a whole bunch of metals that's very interesting in there. And what tends to happen is that people will go, oh, look, I found a piece of chromite. And this is now going to be a multi-billion dollar business. <laughs> it doesn't. You actually find something in the ground. You actually have to spend a vast amount of money confirming its economic viability. And then having done that, you then got to spend a vast amount of money building a mine and then hope that the world's metal prices work in your favor. Because if it doesn't, you've got to shut it down. And that degree of capital intensity isn't something that Mr. Hakani and his friends have really ever come across. Is how do I make a quick buck shifting something from one side of the border to the other side of the border? Hmm. Yeah. And so mining is not unique, but it has this capital intensity to it that those who grab hold of assets that don't realize what needs to happen next will sit on it saying, I've got something that's worth trillions. And it's not worth anything because they haven't done the work. But it could be worth something if they do the work, and they're not going to do the work unless someone else comes in and shares the financial load 
in ways that ensures that those who put the money in make decent returns too. I mean, chromite's not sufficiently important to, for anyone in the world to need to do a deal with Mr. Hakani. But copper, the INAC copper deal, which taking a big step back that MCC have got, and they've got the complications with the, the 10th century Machu Picchu sitting on top of it, but that is something that there will be a way to resolve it because of its scale and its importance. Chromite is, you know, it's, it's not that it's to all chrome miners out there, not an important part of the metal supply chain, but it isn't sitting there in, in a place where the world can't live without Afghan chromite mines. Makani's not sitting on something that the world's going to chase. But that does explain this kind of, this constant differential between Afghanistan, the source of you know all the world's minerals, and Afghanistan not actually a successful mining country. The geography works against it, though, doesn't it? I mean, the geography and the politics. You know, I remember many years ago when they were talking about doing gas pipelines from Central Asia yeah. through to the um, Indian Ocean, and the Americans were absolutely determined, obviously, to avoid Iran at all costs. And the yeah. Iranians would constantly argue to them, well, why don't you put the pipeline through Turkmenistan, through eastern Iran? It's all much easier going. Yeah. And the Americans insisted, really, that it all go through. They did all this. You know, there was that time when they were courting the Taliban, if you remember, in the late 1990s. And, of course, people in Iran would say, first of all, and this is coming from the Iranians. I mean, think about it. When it's coming from the Iranians, it's quite something. And they say, well, frankly, the Afghans are too busy killing each other. So there are too many factions here. And when one faction makes peace, when one another one will emerge. But the other thing is, they said, you know, imagine building these pipelines across some of the most mountainous terrain in the world. I mean, how are you going to protect them? You know, they're all vulnerable to the fact that one faction or another will disrupt them. So it's an interesting moral tale in a way that the Chinese have settled themselves in to take seize, you know, the largest copper deposits, you know, in the world or whatever in Afghanistan. But the idea of actually getting them out is of a whole different scale of operation, isn't it? It's a different scale. I mean, look, technically, when, as you said, Chinese won that asset in competition with Freeport McMahon, American, you know, multi-billion dollar copper business, and and haven't really, I mean, they've done a lot of exploring, a lot of studying, and they've tried to move some of this settlement and so on, but they actually haven't, as I understand it, taken it to the point at which they're going to sort of construct this thing and so on. But what they do have, and your point about having a 30-year mine life in terms of their license, they probably feel they can get that extended. So they have the metal in the ground. They've secured this option, and they're prepared to wait until the politics changes. Western companies, very hard to do that. And it's one of the natures of mining. Just go back to what I said right at the start, 15 to 20 years to get a mine up and running. How many elections happen over that period of time? Absolutely. How many global economic crises happen? How many times does the metal price collapse and go back up again? Mining is pretty hairy business <laughs> and geopolitics and a whole bunch of other factors that are outside your mining that really impacts upon the probability of success. But what gives you the greatest chance of success is something that is, is, is a metal that the world needs, is of sufficient grade, in other words, there's a lot of money in the ground, and a sufficient size to be worth waiting for. Richard, you were talking to us just before we started recording about your trip to the Congo and saying how how much effort would be needed to turn Jake Sullivan's de-risking into a proper competitive industrial strategy. Could you just reflect, we've got not very long left, but it would be great to hear your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, 
The Democratic Republic of Congo is a major player in the global metal supply chain, not just because of cobalt, but let's just use cobalt and copper as the two metals that we've spoken about that are important. And a lot of those large copper cobalt mines are owned by you know, Chinese companies, Chinese molybdenum, um, Zijin would be to name two. And America would prefer to have some of that copper and cobalt coming their way and not via China. Now, there's been a change of the president there. Kabila's moved off and uh, I'm not saying his network because it isn't still very influential in the country. But go back to that point about refining. If America, American funds built a copper cobalt refinery in the Congo, that allowed the Congolese to make money, not just from mining, but from refining. On the assumption that the back-end product, the option to buy it was primarily going to go west, I'm simplifying the world, to America, uh, whatever the Western market is. That's potentially very interesting to the Congolese government. And so when you look at how the metal supply chain is going to change, which you touched on railways, and America offered recently, and it's, it sits in the bureaucracy, whether it'll be executed or not, we'll see. I hope it does, of a, a new railway linking you know, parts of the Congo to the Atlantic Ocean via Angola and elsewhere. Hundreds of millions of dollars are required for that, if not billions. Now, if you could put that type of investment to work in the same way that the China does its Belt and Road Initiative and offer a little bit more of the value chain to the Congolese, and you can do all of that faster than China can put its cards on the table, then you have a bit of a chance. But you do need to get moving. This can't be, you know, PowerPoints and political posturing. This really does need to be real work moving now. And I came back from the Congo looking at a number of fantastic opportunities for Western businesses, let's say American businesses, American government and elsewhere to really get moving in ways that balances the dependency on China in the Congo in a very useful way for the Congolese, in a very useful way for the world. But you do need to get moving. I mean, that Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, everyone criticizes it because the quality of the roads or the quality of the railway or the debt that comes with it and all those other things. Us making developing countries dependent upon us as a result of overloading them with debt is part of our history too, not just the Chinese history, by the way. So I always find this equivalence thing to be you know, interesting. It depends on what point of history you want to talk about. But if you move quickly on that, that could be very useful. And really importantly, could be really useful for a country who's more than 200 million people uh, is growing exceedingly fast. And so this is where the relationship between governments, mining, social benefits, and the wider development goals, if done right, work well. But you can't just rely on the private entities to do it because you're not going to get a mining company to build that railway. You're not going to get a mining company to build or underwrite the development of a cobalt copper refinery because there's going to be periods of time it won't make any money. And money doesn't like to go to places where it loses. So governments can do that for a period of time. You know, in Bunker Hill, we benefit from six and a half cents per kilowatt hour power, which for anyone listening to the call is exceedingly cheap. It's nearly free when it comes to mining. Why? Because of investments done in hydroelectric power done in the 1930s and 40s in the Pacific Northwest. It's green power, courtesy of the big dams that were built. Now, that vision back then of getting out of the depression years of North America and putting that amount of money to work, knowing that it would benefit North America over generations, if not hundreds of years, was remarkable. Here in Ontario, 
65%, I'm calling in from Ontario, 65% of our power comes from nuclear power and the majority of the rest from green energy. That was courtesy of investments made in the 1970s and by governments primarily. So when we sit and say, how are we going to solve the metal supply chain? China is ahead of the game when it comes to its Belt and Road Initiative, because it knows that what we said before about Afghanistan, without power, without water, without people, without railways, without transport, without ports, none of this works. And who's going to build that? Well, this is where government funding, this is where the Belt and Road, and, and again, it's not just government, it's government private. There's always money to be made in the capital markets funding infrastructure projects. but. You know, th those are the things that have got to happen. So basically, you need an industrial strategy. Yes. And a big theme of our podcast, actually, is you need a strategy, you know, which is, which is uh, you know, I mean, one of one of the great, um, you know, it seems to repeat itself on a variety of different themes, I have to say, Richard, which is this idea that we don't think long term enough. We used to, though. We used to. Yeah, we used to. And I, it's always this thing of why we don't. Part of it, I suspect, is politics. It is a question. I mean, and it's something that recurs over and over and over again, this absence of thinking. I mean, if you just look at the dilemmas we're facing in Europe about energy security, I mean, that shows a lot of very poor, yeah. very poor planning, doesn't it? I well, they made, a, they made a view on Russian energy supply, yeah. which, which turned out to be wrong. It, it, and it was a view that it was a strategy. It just turned out to be the wrong one. Uh, yeah, but fair enough. In this particular world, the big question I, that, I, that others that study this far better than me, and I've been rather interested in it is asking yourself the question i saw it on, a, on a, one of my old bosses sort of things the other day um in 2050 the world will have an additional two billion people majority of whom will be poor yeah that's you know just over 25 years away and so what are we collectively going to do about that reality i mean again not doom mongering it isn't sort of the world's going to win net zero so on it's just, just genuine unless things change dramatically that's likely to be and are we really going to be in the business of saying that the current approach, which is to compete with China in a, an increasingly aggressive way, is the best way to ensure those two billion people are best well looked after? And, and again, it's a question that people should be asking about how do we wrestle this competition, which is evidently the case, into a place whereby it morphs into something that is better for everybody. And I don't know what that is. And that's why I was very interested in what Jake Sullivan was saying about moving to de-risking and whether there can be a, you know, a, an adjustment. But go back to strategy. Bad strategy is that which you can't afford. And we've all lived a little bit of those big ideas being Iraq's Afghanistan's, where vast amount of money was put in for military operations. Huge. I mean, just to scale that, gee, if we could touch that on infrastructure investment in critical areas, we'd be laughing. Yeah, abso absolutely. What a total waste of money. Absolutely. And China didn't do any of that. So we have the money. Okay. I think that's a really thought-provoking note to end on, Richard. Food for thought. Yeah. We've run out of time, really. But, but that is the question, which it is for our governments in the West to consider now, uh, is whether we care enough about these challenges to put proper resource and effort into them. So thank you so much for real insights into how the world works in an industry which we need to understand a lot better if we're going to fix some of the problems we've got. Thank you very much from me, Ali. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Hopefully we'll have you back again at some stage. Bye. 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 Bye.